future, what'll be next? Big thoughts keeping the planet in check. Topics ain't easy. Go for some. Hello, Grid Geeks listeners. Sarah Baldwin here for another episode of Grid Geeks, where I talk with policy experts about those esoteric rules shaping our energy future. Today's episode, Yoga for the Grid, making the distribution system more flexible and resilient. Amidst record heat waves, devastating wildfires, fierce windstorms, rolling blackouts, and the hurricane season on the horizon, the vulnerability of the electricity grid looms large these days. Distributed energy resources, or DERs, such as distributed solar, wind, demand response, and energy storage, have long been touted as part of the solution to create a more flexible, resilient, and clean electric grid. These DERs are growing in popularity and demand for consumer-sided resources is surging as prices drop and people seek greater energy security. Yet, despite their fanfare, DERs still remain a relatively small percentage of the electricity grid and an underutilized resource when it comes to utility distribution system operations and planning. Few grid operators really integrate DERs meaningfully into their traditional planning and operations protocols. And as a result, despite their widespread popularity, DERs are not often considered a priority grid resource. DERs have the potential to yield a more flexible and resilient grid, but only if that potential is allowed to be realized. In this episode, I speak with two experts to explore what's happening on the cutting edge of DER policies, regulations, codes, and standards. We'll also talk about grid flexibility, resilience, and what more is really needed to unlock the full potential of DERs. So with me today is Brian Leidick. Chief Regulatory Engineer for the Interstate Renewable Energy Council, or IREC. Welcome, Brian. Thank you, Sarah. Glad to to be on. And we also have Jessica Shipley, Senior Associate with the Regulatory Assistance Project. Welcome, Jessica. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, it's great to have you both on here. And uh, probably for for the sake of disclosure, I used to uh, work with Brian at IREC. And uh, so it's great to reconnect with you, Brian. And Jessica, you and I have also had the opportunity to work on a number of things over the years. And uh, so it's really fun to to be able to talk with friends about interesting topics. And I'm excited to dive into our topic today. And really, it's many topics within within one topic. So um, I'm going to start first with... uh, both of you and have you just give give a brief introduction about what, what it is you do for a living and, and what sort of focus you have in the DER space. So Brian, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So like I said, I'm Chief Regulatory Engineer with uh, Interstate Renewable Energy Council or IREC and uh, we I work on the regulatory team there and we work with utilities and other stakeholders to basically determine the rules for interconnection of distributed energy resources, um, both process-wise uh, as well as technical rules. Um, and not me being an engineer, you know, I focus on the technical side of things, but also get involved in some of the process issues. And this is mostly in front of public utility commissions um, and some working groups that you know might be involved in uh, regulatory dockets and whatnot. Uh, and then and so that's my, my main work. And then beside of that, I help make the sausage or, uh, sorry, make the standards um, <laughs> for interconnection, um, like IEEE 1547 and, and UL 1741. 
so yeah, those are my the, my main focuses on that technical stuff, uh, mostly in the nitty gritty details of the uh, the technical requirements. Great. Thanks. And I, I know a lot about the work you do, and I really admire all the uh, synergies you bring to the policy side, the regulatory, and the technical. It's, uh, you're, you're a bit of a uni- unicorn out there, Brian. Um, Jessica, mm-hmm. yeah, t- <laughs> tell us a little bit about yourself and the work you do for Regulatory Assistance Project. Sure. Um, so I've been with RAP, or Regulatory Assistance Project, for about three and a half years Um RAP is a nonpartisan NGO. Um, we work primarily with policymakers and regulators. Uh, our focus is on regulatory issues, um, for mostly for on the electric side, but we do work some on the gas side as well. Um, and we're focused on a transition to a clean, reliable, efficient energy future. Um, so at RAP, I um, we all sort of wear a number of hats, but my focus is primarily been on our beneficial electrification policy and regulatory work and also on um, regulatory reform efforts. So um, working with regulators and policymakers to make our regulatory structures more um, modern and accommodating to some of the, the trends that we're seeing out there in technology and policy and customer desires. Some of the things we're actually hopefully going to talk a little bit more about today, I think. So um that's a very brief uh, background of me. Wonderful. Well, yeah, RAP does great work and the direct work you do with regulatory commissions across the country is super important, uh, particularly as more and more issues fall on their plates and, and they need to figure them out. So you guys are both out there helping our regulatory commissioners do their jobs, which is super. So let's dive into distributed energy resources. Um, by nature, they're they're tricky to talk about in in one sitting because there are so many types of them and they all have different uh, issues underlying them. But we'll, we'll start first with demand response. Um, so Jessica, I'm going to have you just give us a little primer on what demand response is and why we need more of it, what it can really do for us, and particularly in the context of of the need for greater flexibility and resilience. Sure. Yeah, you're so right um, that DERs are um, quite diverse and varied, and but many of the barriers, I think, are similar. So hopefully we'll see some themes kind of rising throughout this podcast. Um, so I think the primary thing that most people think about when they hear the term demand response is load shedding or curtailing certain loads at, you know, times of system stress or during peak demand times. And I think this is typically done through utility control of end user devices. So utilities actually managing those devices and turning them off or turning them down during those peak times. But it can also be through utilities sending alerts or price signals to end end use customers to either encourage or require them to reduce their load. Um, And this type of demand response this load shedding type of demand response is important because it helps avoid the risk of a major grid problem like a brownout or a blackout during these times of system stress. And I think this type of demand response will continue to be very important going forward as daily load curves become more and more shaped by hopefully intermittent renewable energy. And we have the potential also to see an increased number of grid stress events caused by um, extreme weather and 
fires and all the kinds of things we're seeing currently right now in the West. Um, so this, the potential for responsive demand to help meet system needs in the future, I think is quite large. And if we're smart about tapping into that, it can help avoid the need for other more expensive investments like new generation resources to meet those system needs. Um, and I think there's also growing recognition that demand response can be more than just load shedding, that it can provide more value through other types of services like load shifting, which gets to the, you know, the flexibility question. Um, so as we're adding more renewable energy to the grid, we need to get better at scheduling our demand to meet that supply, which is really the opposite of what we are used to doing, which is scheduling supply to meet demand. Um, so I know we're going to get more into this, but if, if we can encourage consumers uh, of electricity to shift, if they do have flexible loads, say their electric vehicle charging, for example, to times of the day when power is clean and abundant, we can solve some of these grid challenges and also help customers save money at the same time. And I think utilities and regulators are starting to get smarter about, about demand response. Great. That's a helpful overview. Uh, do you have a few other examples? You mentioned vehicle charging, but just for the listeners out there who may not be as familiar, what other either appliances or uh, load components are easily made flexible and uh, adaptable to the load conditions and the grid conditions? Yeah. Um, well, with the sort of Internet of Things revolution, there's um, many of our home devices are actually becoming more and more sort of possible to connect up to our Wi-Fi. We can use our smartphone to manage when our thermostats turn on, um, smart plugs even. Um, water heating is also commonly um, thought of as one of the most sort of flexible loads because um, water heaters themselves can sort of serve as a thermal battery. Um, you don't necessarily need that hot water at the same time as it's being created because your water heater can actually store that, that energy in the, in the form of hot water for, for many hours. So those are a couple of the other ones that I think are commonly talked about um, in terms of sort of residential and maybe small commercial end use loads that can be sort of shifted around to different times of the day. Yeah, that's great. I, and I think a lot of those are newer, as you say, and or folks are becoming more familiar with them and hopefully we'll see more of them um, both in the residential and commercial sectors. There's a lot of untapped potential there. So Jessica, you mentioned load flexibility. Um, I'm going to ask you to dig in a little bit more to that. What, what is that? Why is that becoming so critical to uh, enabling the 21st century grid? It seems like it's very corollary to the demand response that you were just mentioning. Yeah, and load flexibility is one of my favorite topics, so I'm just <laughs> thrilled to have the opportunity to talk about it. Um, and so it's essentially what I was just referring to a minute ago around shifting um, end uses of electricity to other times of the day. Um, it means basically being able to shift our usage to times that are consistent with the grid's needs, and then in doing so, ideally save end users money in doing that. So there's value to be created both for the grid as a whole, but also for end use consumers and ideally for society, if we can use load shifting to um, potentially reduce emissions, for example. So load flexibility means taking advantage of some of these new technological advance advancements that we were just talking about. And 
really, I think, you know, the future is automation. So automating the use of the grid to be aligned with times of abundant, uh, clean, cheap energy. And how this actually works in practice, you could have a utility that's act actively managing loads. So for example, by turning off or turning down the flow at an EV charger or actively, you know, turning down thermostats by a couple of degrees and when aggregated across a large number of customers can have a significant impact on the, the wider grid. Um, or you could have a third-party aggregator or even customers themselves managing loads in response to, say, a price signal or mm -hmm. just a notification from the utility um, that, you know, that there's a time sort of that needs to be avoided or a time that is actually good to be using more electricity during those hours. Um, and so you asked why it's becoming more and more critical. I think um, it relates to the demand response um, issue, but as zero marginal cost resources flourish, uh, but are only available at certain times, I think flexibility is going to become just a really central grid resource. I mean, if we want to integrate more clean renewable energy, we need it to be a, a more central resource. And flexible loads also mean you can reduce your energy at high cost times, which again, helps to reduce that overall grid stress and, and put downward pressure on costs. Um, so if I could, I would just say, um, and as an example, one of the most promising sectors is in buildings. And a huge amount of our energy use happens in buildings, but flexible loads mean buildings can become a DER, a distributed resource for the grid in and of themselves. Mm -hmm. And there's um, an interesting study from Brattle recently that found that by 2030, flexible loads could be almost 200 gigawatts. And just smart thermostats and smart water heating alone is nearly half of that potential. So if we could focus on those two end uses in buildings, we could bring a huge amount of cost savings to the grid and um, improve renewable integration. Um, so those are some of the, I think, key benefits and key reasons why we need uh, more load flexibility. Great. Yeah. So it's kind of like uh, we have all these potential pieces to build a, a virtual power plant um, in the form of distributed resources and we're kind of sitting on them. We're not really use, utilizing them yet. Um, but clearly we need to start utilizing them. And California, if, if nothing else, is one great example as they call on all of their mm -hmm. customers to, to help with these kinds of things um, during the last week of rolling blackouts and mm -hmm. other wildfire issues that are happening. So I want to switch gears. Thank you so much, Jessica, for that um, very helpful overview. I want to switch gears slightly. We'll come back to some of the p points you raised with some of the later questions. But uh, sort of you talked about the demand component and the load component. Brian, your focus is, as you mentioned, on interconnection of distributed generation and energy storage. Um, you also work on a new uh, new but not new standard a standard that that is updated on a uh, fairly regular basis but is relatively un, unknown or less known lesser known um, the IEEE 1547 2018 standard which governs distributed energy resource interconnections among other things um, so tell us a little bit about that standard and also the new dot one standard that uh, just was released uh, a few weeks ago Sure. Uh, it's my favorite topic. I'll try not to use the whole rest of the hour on this. <laughs> um, but yeah, it does uh, 1540, IEEE 1547. It's uh, 
it's a stand technical inter interconnection standard that focuses on distributed generation, so it doesn't uh, doesn't try to tackle load issues. Um, but yeah, mostly in terms of like PV systems or gas generators, uh, and now energy storage systems as well. And uh, the first version of this was created uh, by IEEE back. It was published in uh, 2003, so uh, it's. Uh, a little old, but the first revision to that uh, was well. The, the yeah, the first full revision was in 2018. Um, a little background: the, the Energy Policy Act of 2005, a, a federal act, uh, adopted that uh, 1547 to be the basis of all uh, interconnection uh, technical requirements. Uh, in, in the act, you know, also required utilities to offer interconnection services at the same time, but they should be based on the technical requirements of 1547. So it's it's um, a voluntary standard, but it is really written into law. And, uh, you know, PUCs uh, generally require the utilities to follow it. So uh, it is adopted widely across the nation. And uh, now it's been updated after 15 years. Um, uh, finally got updated in 2018 to add quite a bit more given the evolution of DER, especially due to PV system penetration across the U.S. Um, so the original standard in 2003 mostly ad addressed trip settings for frequency and voltage, meaning that if voltage or frequency on the grid got out of whack, the unit would shut off. Um, and then when it reconnected to the grid, it would have to stay within certain voltage and frequency parameters and there were power quality uh, parameters that it needed to stay within, like uh, harmonic uh, distortion parameters, uh, and, and also required anti-islanding, meaning that if the if you were disconnected from the rest of the bulk grid, you must uh, be able to detect that and shut off. And then there were some kind of basic testing requirements um, for that. And then 1547.1 is kind of the companion equipment testing standard for that base standard 1547 that was initially released in 2005 uh, and was just updated this year I think in um, June was the the release of that and you know that basically determines that uh, you meet all those requirements that a specific piece of equipment can meet in order to be 1547 compliant um, in 2018 the new standard added a lot of new requirements um, including ride-through requirements for voltage and frequency, meaning the, the distributed generators must be able to remain connected uh, to the grid, even if voltage and frequency go out of whack for some time. And then added voltage regulation, meaning that they must be able to try and uh, change the voltage at their terminals, which was actually prohibited in the 2003 version. And then uh, it added also frequency regulation, meaning that it uh, tries to either reduce power on over-frequency or increase power on under-frequency. There's a whole new slew of interoperability requirements or communications requirements. So this is a big thing. This was not hardly anything was, was in the original standard regarding communications requirements. And uh, now every system must have some sort of standardized communications capabilities uh, with the ability to affect a lot of the settings related to these the, the new functionality 
and there's more power quality requirements on top of the old ones and, and somewhat different power quality requirements than before. There's more detailed testing requirements. There's new concepts uh, like the uh, reference points of applicability, which is uh, way too detailed to get into, but um, changes kind of the way we think about how systems get uh, verified for compliance. And new section on microgrids or intentional islands, as it's called, and, and network systems um, deals a little bit with charging systems for energy storage systems. So, as I said, it doesn't apply to load, but there are uh, certain things like in uh, frequency regulation where energy storage system would be required to actually go to, into a charging mode. And the, another big difference from 2003 is, is that it's kind of a, a menu of options that you have to choose from when when implementing it or adopting it. It doesn't say that every single generator has to do this set of things. There's kind of uh, a couple different or several different things <laughs> that it could do, and they're kind of put into categories. So it's up to the, the body adopting the standard to choose those different categories. One's called the normal category for basically for voltage regulation capability, and the other is the abnormal category for the ride-through capability and dependent on, you know, how how much capability a piece of equipment could uh, could utilize as well as what the grid actually requires based on the uh, level of penetration, then you could select these different categories. So it's really not a straight, not nearly as straightforward as uh, just applying the original standard and will really take quite a bit of work to do that adoption, not not just because of all the new requirements, but also because of these decision points that need to be made. Great. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm all too familiar with the standard, thanks to your um, edification over the years, and I've definitely um, come to really appreciate the complexity and the, and the various decision points that you reference. Um, so basically, to recap, if I may, we've got we're anticipating a, a continued growth of distributed generation, energy storage, smart inverters, and other demand-side resources on the grid. And we really want them to be smart. In other words, we want them to be reactive in a positive way to what's happening in more real-time conditions on the grid and also anticipate the uh, need to respond to any um, fluctuations in frequency or voltage so as to avoid any adverse impacts on the grid thus allowing more distributed energy resources to come online without being concerned that we're reaching penetration levels that can become untenable from a, um, a technical standpoint. Is that accurate? Yeah, definitely. And you know, I, one thing I should have mentioned also about 1547, that it, it looks at DER from the bulk system perspective as well, even though it's a distribution uh, standard thinking about all the DERs that you might have in a high penetration scenario on a, on a system, on the bulk system, there's definitely effects that they can have there. So it, it, you're kind of looking at both the bulk effects as well as the local effects. Right. So the key theme with both, Jessica, what you were talking about with demand response and Brian, what you're talking about with uh, the IEEE 1547 standard and the distributed energy resource evolution is that we're going to see more of these resources. We want to see more of these resources on the grid, on the distribution side, but in order for them to really be optimized, we need to be able to see them and plan for them and operate with them as an integral part of the system as opposed to just being on the fringe and, and sort of something we don't really think about, plan for, or take into account when it comes to... Um, 
managing our resources and the needs that we have for new generation and upgrades to the grid, et cetera. So they're super important. They're very wonky. <laughs> and that seems to be the theme with grid geeks. Super important, very wonky. Stay tuned. Um, so uh, I want to ask, and, and Jessica, I'm, I may be putting you a little bit on the spot, but um, you know, you talked about demand response, and Brian, obviously you've talked about the IEEE standard. I want to have both of you uh, share with us which states are really leading on these fronts. Um, so Jessica, maybe I'll, I'll start with you. Um, if you have any states just off the top of your head that are doing well with both planning for and integrating demand response into their uh, utility grid planning situation? Um, yeah, I think um, my sort of limited, I guess, knowledge of all states across the country would 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 indicate for me that the, the best deployment of demand response so far has really taken place in the organized wholesale markets where there's been um, sort of a, a, a market structure or format for demand response resources to uh, bid in and sort of offer their capabilities, offer their services. Um, I know we're going to get to talking about California in a, in a little bit here. I think, um, you know, with the recent events that we saw there, demand response that wasn't even sort of contracted or, um, you know, wasn't even bid into a market was able to show up and really make a big difference in the events that they had there. So that that state is certainly sort of top of mind for me right now. But I think um, other than that, really what comes to mind is is the areas of the country that are served by the organ organized wholesale markets. Uh, particularly, I think PJM has had some success in um, bringing demand response resources to, to sort of a larger scale. Um, so I hope that is somewhat of the answer you're looking for. I, I don't have a whole lot of other specific states off the top of my head. No, that's helpful. Brian, uh, same question to you, but on regarding the adoption of the IEEE 1547 standard, which states are really leading on this and or uh, taking the deep dive into uh, implementation? Sure. So California and Hawaii really started, they, they actually put pressure on 1547 to update because they started uh, putting their own smart inverter requirements for PV systems and energy storage systems into place starting back, um, you know, around, well, they, they started the effort, probably California started looking into it around 2013 and they started really going into effect in 2017 and a little bit earlier in Hawaii. And um, so that has really led the development, a lot of, a lot of the functionality that uh, was deemed as needed uh, moving forward, and that was included then in 1547. So California kind of already uh, include a lot of that functionality, but then it's been developed further in 1547. And so the, actually the first state to adopt 1547-2018 was Minnesota, in their technical uh, interconnection and interoperability requirements, which were adopted in January of this year. And that, uh, that effort started off way back in the spring of 2018. Uh, and we wrote uh, through, we met as a working group and wrote through early to mid uh, 2019. So it's, it, we learned that it was uh, quite a big lift. Um, Minnesota was also developing those rules from scratch. So they, um, it was maybe a little bit bigger than other places that already have technical rules in place, but they're the ones that have really done 
the the full effort of you know getting something out there, completing the work and, and published. Um, Maryland has also uh, done some initial work in terms of they've decided on the date that uh, smart inverters at least will will need to comply with 1547, uh, and that would be uh, January 1st, 2022. Um, but they haven't done the full look at all the adoption details of 1547, but that work should start in early, probably either near the end of this year or early 2021. And uh, Hawaii has uh, been holding stakeholder meetings, actually led by IREC, um, since November uh, in order to harmonize. So the, as I mentioned, they already had smart inverter requirements and in their interconnection rules, but now they have to go back and basically harmonize or do their best to harmonize where they can, given that they're an island system uh, with the new standard. Um, and so we've worked through most of those technical issues over the last uh, less than a year. And they've also issued what they call a source requirements document for those uh, mostly frequency-based issues where they actually have to differ from 1547 because of the, the island nature of their electric system. So they issued that uh, back in June in order to help the manufacturers of uh, inverter systems be able to design and uh, eventually test their units to their requirements in addition to 1547 since they're somewhat um, wider, I guess you would say, or a little bit uh, more stringent requirements than 1547. So they've done that work, but they still have yet to actually file um, file and publish those requirements. That will happen by the end of the year, most likely. And then California, uh, through their Smart Inverter Working Group, to do that uh, adoption and harmonization effort. And uh, we don't know the exact timeline there, but that is uh, just getting off the ground right now. And 1547 also, you know, in a, I keep mentioning smart inverters, but it also it applies to all generations. So that adoption effort uh, where it may have been focused on smart inverters before, it, it's also going to affect all generations as well. Um, and then Washington, D.C. is discussing tariff language right now to reference the new standard, uh, but not probably going through the full adoption details at the moment. Um, and then Massachusetts, North Carolina, and New York are kind of working with their uh, their working groups, uh, they have uh, Massachusetts and North Carolina have a technical standards review group, and North New York has something similar called the uh, Interconnection Technical Working Group. But they're starting those discussions. Uh, Massachusetts is probably the furthest along of all of them, but still waiting to see kind of uh, what direction they're all going there. And it also mentioned that uh, both MISO and PJM have published ride-through and trip guidance so that states or utilities, uh, distribution utilities that are working on 1547 adoption can look to them since some of those ride-through voltage and frequency ride-through aspects do affect the bulk system. So that's why the, uh, the ISOs or RTOs are getting involved there. Great. So uh, a lot of activity on this. Um, interesting that Hawaii and California are having to circle back after they were initially leaders on this. And now they're, um, you know, the harmonization effort, as you call it, is uh, pretty important because otherwise they would be sort of off on their own um, islands, for lack of a better term, in how they implement it. Um, and for the market's sake, it's really important to get as much consistency as possible um, Last thing we need is a 50-state patchwork of the implementation of a national standard um, because that really makes it hard for manufacturers and developers and installers and customers even to navigate uh, the 
multi-layered process of getting equipment certified and approved and permitted. So um, super important stuff. So we've talked about distributed generation stuff. We've talked about demand response. I want to switch into energy storage, um, which is another really critical distributed energy resource and a, a growing player on the grid. Yet there are a lot of barriers to its adoption still on the, particularly on the distribution system. Um, so I want to start with you, Jessica, if you want to opine on the barriers to adoption and what's being done well uh, in any particular state or region to address these barriers. And then I'll switch over to you, Brian. Okay. Um, yeah, well, one of the amazing things about energy storage is that it can provide just a huge range of potential system values and services to both the distribution system and the bulk power system. Um, so it's kind of a chameleon in that it can look like load and it can look like supply. Um, but one of the challenges that poses is in creating uh, compensation mechanisms that don't under or overpay for the value that storage can provide. Um, and there's really a lot of barriers to storage and, and other DERs that need to be overcome. Um, I guess a couple quickly that come to mind. Uh, one is the need for wholesale market reforms that make it fairer and easier for storage to participate and create more appropriate compensation mechanisms for storage resources that don't necessarily look the same as you know, the traditional uh, generator resources within the markets, but that need to evolve in order to accommodate participation by storage. Um, and these types of arrangements are being explored. Um, I think, you know, California comes to mind as a place that's starting to kind of test out some different um, sort of mechanisms, such as a non-wire solution where storage can, you know, play the role or help play a role uh, that a generator resource might have played um, in a non-wire solution. So those are some things that I think we need to explore in the wholesale market side. Um, but another issue that is particularly relevant for our topic today around load flexibility is retail rate design. Um, and as is a very one of a, sort of a pet love topic of mine is rate design and behind the meter storage. Um, allows customers to be flexible about their energy use. So back to the flexibility point. Um, but the vast majority of rate designs in our country aren't structured to encourage um, flexibility in such a way that actually benefits the grid as a whole. So in other words, rates don't reward customers for reducing demand at certain times and using energy at others, which is particularly a problem for a resource like energy storage, which has the ability to efficiently arbitrage between times of day. And that arbitrage can be a significant source of the economic value of the storage resource itself. So that can be a major barrier. Um, rate design can be a major barrier to sort of the value proposition of storage. Um, and then I guess the last one that comes to mind and that will also come up again, I think, if we talk about DERs more broadly, is planning. Um, in particular, distribution planning has historically been just a black box to regulators and non-utility stakeholders, which uh, has made it quite difficult for developers and customers to understand where and when a resource like energy storage might be most able to actually provide value to the grid. Um, and we can, we can get into resource planning and procurement as well, but um, I think I'll just 
I'll wrap up the the initial thoughts there. Great. Brian, what would you add to that list? So, yeah, Jessica really hit on the those big picture issues. Uh, I would, as an interconnection person, I would point towards interconnection as being one of the bottlenecks towards even getting that far um, on the more detailed and, you know, local level at the, at the generator terminals. This is <laughs> where interconnection matters um, because if the utility won't let you size your system up to a certain level, then you can't provide those services uh, or provide as much service as you maybe could have. And, and the issue, one of the main issues that is coming up in terms of energy storage interconnection is, especially with AC coupled storage, uh, you may have multiple inverters on site if, if you've got a PV store or PV system plus a storage system, and they both have their own inverters. Then you've got a, a larger nameplate rating in terms of the power output than you would if you just had uh, one smaller inverter. And so, when the utility reviews that system, a lot of times under today's rules, they would be reviewing that as the total nameplate of both those systems, even if the energy storage system is never going to be outputting at the same time as the PV storage system is. And moving to a more granular level, you know, what can the energy storage system do in terms of changing its operating profile throughout the day or throughout the seasons in order to accommodate the different load at that uh, circuit? And and that is really just not accounted well for uh, in, in most areas today. And we're just, just starting to try and change that uh, today. And so, you know, really that controllability, um, the ability to, you know, perhaps serve more load uh, might be hindered by the fact that an energy storage system seeking interconnection is really being compared against, in terms of its export levels, being compared against the minimum load, say, for the entire year on that circuit. And, and if they would uh, cause some voltage issue or something like that at that minimum load, they may have to pay uh a, a decent amount of money in order to get interconnected and, and have a conductor upgraded or a transformer upgraded or some other piece of equipment changed on the utility system. And so that can impede, you know, these systems even being built in the first place. And, you know, that they might be spending money on, if they do get built, they're maybe spending on money on something that would never be the case in actual practice because they wouldn't actually operate in the way that, that it's being assumed that they would operate. Um, so that that seems to be one big thing that we would like to uh, uh, work on. Uh, communications to these systems would help. You know, if you do have a derm system, but you know, we generally do not have derm systems anywhere yet, and we don't expect them in the real near future. So in the meantime, something like scheduling could be used if you had uh, if you if you knew what the load was generally. Even season to season, you know, you could do some sort of schedule where an energy system knows not to export more than a certain amount or not import more than a certain amount at a certain time of day or or just a maximum level. And, and we're trying to figure out kind of what granularity to that schedule would be most beneficial um, for the system as well as just moving through the interconnection process. Um, in terms of what's being done, the uh, there is a test protocol for what are called power control systems that can manage that export level. And right now the working group is working on uh, including scheduling capability so that you could actually certify scheduling capability for a system. And it could be a could be just a storage system or it could be PV plus storage, or it could even be just a PV system itself, but you could manage that export level over time. And uh, we're working on that. Uh, California actually just recently uh, put out a proposed de decision that uses um, 
in, in the interconnection process can use the monthly uh, hosting capacity values compared to what a system profile output would be. But there's a lot of details there that need to be worked out to, to make that system workable. Uh, but hopefully we'll be able to integrate those types of profiles better into the interconnection process so that systems can actually respond to what the load on the system is uh, in a beneficial manner. And I would also say that microgrids are, are one value uh, that energy storage systems specifically can offer um, in at the circuit level or, you know, at the site level, but they're not really being planned for at scale. So, you know, for any DER really, um, for distributed generators, they have to shut off in the event of an island. Uh, they're not really being planned for being integrated into wider scale microgrids. Um, IREC does uh, a little plug for IREC's DOE project. We've got a, a project called Batteries, which is trying to look at some of these interconnection related um, impediments to energy storage adoption and see what potential solutions they are over the next few years. And that project's just getting underway. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, excited to see where that project takes you all and uh, great partnerships with EPRI and utilities and the solar and storage associations out there. So um, very, very important work. Um, you know, it always strikes me as so ironic that at a time when we really need more storage than ever before um, on our grid, both for flexibility as well as reliability and resilience, uh, it seems to be so difficult to actually make that happen as you guys have uh, articulated. And I wonder if there's not a way to speed up some of these regulatory and, and code processes so that, you know, we, we can start to really um, optimize the energy storage technology that we have available in the market um, instead of, you know, dragging our feet for the next 10 years. At that point, we're too little too late, in my opinion. So, I think, you know, it would be great to be able to um, fast track some of this work. And uh, you touched on a lot of things in describing the barriers, and I want to switch a little bit to the California rolling blackout uh, example. There was some speculation uh, that Kaizo, the um, grid operator, if they had had more visibility into the DERs on the distribution grid that they actually could have been called upon to prevent or minimize the dis the disruption. Um, and so I'm curious if either of you have thoughts on that. Maybe I'll start with you, Jessica. Okay. Yeah, I, um, I guess a, a thought up front just on kind of the question as a whole, and then I'll comment on your question about the role of DERs. Um, I think it's important to, to put the shutoffs in a little bit of context. Um, and I would probably myself prefer a term like controlled rotating outages mm -hmm. rather than blackout um, because, you know, what we saw was about 400,000 people losing power for no more than an hour, um, those individuals on the first day. And then on the second day, it was a smaller number of people and only for 20 minutes. Um, and these kinds of managed outages mean that the grid doesn't experience a massive collapse and it helps to keep the power on for everyone by cutting power to a small number of people for a short period of time. Now that's not to say that the outages experienced by those people weren't important or impactful and I don't mean to minimize that, but I do think it's important to, you know, think a, a little bit about some of the comparisons maybe that are actually, you know, front and center for us right now, which is that the public safety power shutoffs are going on affecting 
uh, in California anyway, almost 200,000 customers for, for more than a day. Mm-hmm. Um, so probably, you know, much greater impact on those customers than what was felt during the rotating outages. And one of the reasons I think that the problem that California faced was mitigated and also why they haven't seen additional outages since the 14th and 15th of August is that voluntary load reductions showed up when the ISO requested it. Um, And so this is sort of back to the demand response um, version of DERs. Um, So we we have evidence from that event that distributed resources are available in California, particularly in the form of load reduction, but arguably from other distributed resources as well. Um, And so, yes, I think it would be good for the ISO to have more visibility into what DERs are available and will reliably show up when they are called. And one way that um, is something that I think is kind of an exciting development that um, could expand visibility for the ISO and also for other entities is to expand the use of what's called pay for performance or metered energy efficiency and demand response so that the performance of those resources can be actually validated by the ISO and the ISO can then be more certain of their availability or their likelihood to sort of be available in uh, an event like what they had in middle of August. Um, But I think the central issue for how to improve the situation going forward is to, again, improve the certainty that resources will be available by improving how we contract and price that those resources with customers. Um, so the fact that they got 4,000 megawatts um, at, peak, at the peak hour shows that it's there, it's available. Um, the problem is it's not contracted to be there. Mm-hmm. And our system isn't planned based on the knowledge that that resource is there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a couple of just kind of longer term issues that are embedded in that. And I think if those 4,000 megawatts can appear with one day's notice, why can't we get them contracted with one year's notice, Mm -hmm. for example. And if we're willing to pay for customers to provide grid services, I'm willing to bet we could get a lot more than just that 4,000 megawatts that the ISO got voluntarily. Absolutely, no doubt, and and perhaps even more than that. Um, That's a really helpful clarification of the issue as well as an explanation of the opportunity for demand response and other DERs to have showed up uh, to support that issue and others um, as there are many others that are occurring in their different circumstances. Um, Brian, do you have thoughts on that? Uh, sure. Well, so I'm I'm uncertain whether there would be enough, say, distributed storage yet um, to make a really big dent when called upon today. But I think this event and as well as the PSPS shutoffs have really pointed out that more distributed uh, distribution network integration needs to be done. And um, you know, today, for instance, like load shedding doesn't incorporate knowledge of the DER on a circuit in general. So. Uh, you know, they, they may know where large DER systems are. I'm not certain actually uh, who does know that yet today. Um, but for for all the smaller systems uh, and what they amount to, you may shut off a circuit that, you know, has a decent amount of DER. And, and if you can know, for one, you know, that that DER is there and plan around that, as well as, you know, preferably having real-time information about that DER output, that would uh, definitely help planning in the future for these types of events. 
Um, but also, as I mentioned before, just allowing the interconnection where DERs like energy storage can respond at high load would be one step towards um, planning towards that. So, you know, it really gets down to the nitty gritty details of what are we doing today and what do we need to change today to allow these systems to respond in the future um, without having to, you know, pay a ton of upfront fees, uh, which would really, you know, be a big hurdle to even getting these systems in place and, uh, at all. And, you know, also, you know, in relation, especially to the PSPS events, uh, planning for microgrids uh, would be uh, a great step, you know, to start now, because if you don't really plan for that, then it's going to make integration a lot harder later on uh, once there is enough DER on the system and enough energy storage spread throughout the system that you could actually do that. Um, you know, we're just, we need to set ourselves up for that win. And we also need to really, like you said, Sarah, get started working on it now and, and do it faster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so you've, you've started to elaborate a little bit more on how we really get DERs to be a more mainstream component of grid planning and operations. And you both work alongside regulators that are grappling with these policy questions. So uh, I'd like to take the the last uh, few minutes that we have together to allow each of you to expand on or um, recap, you know, the, the key takeaways for particularly our regulatory listeners and um, policymakers who want to better understand what they can be doing to optimize DERs on the grid and and get them to be a more mainstream part of our um, of our existence. And Jessica, I'll start with you. Okay, yeah, this is such a good and hard question. That, um, <laughs> many smart people are working on. I I think a major issue um, that needs to be addressed and that we're starting to see you know rise to the to the top for many states is the fact that D, that DERs have the effect of reducing utility sales often and and the need for utility capital investments of their own, um, which utilities have a strong incentive to discourage in sort of the traditional way that utilities make money. So they put it sort of to put it another way, they have no incentive to figure out how to better utilize DERs and make them that more mainstream component of grid planning and operations that you talked about. So there's a few, you know, kind of key steps that I think we need to be implementing. Um, first off is revenue decoupling. It's such an important and basic first step to start to remove some of the disincentives utilities have for things that reduce their sales. But secondly, we need to be looking for opportunities to actually incentivize utilities to use distributed or small-scale solutions that um, are often the most cost-effective way to meet grid needs. Um, and we're, we're starting to see states exploring this through a number of different um, types of proceedings around performance-based regulation, grid modernization, um, distributed resource planning. So there's um, there's action happening on this front, but I think it's a key barrier that um, needs to be addressed before many of the others can kind of um, be dealt with. I, um, I guess another one to just hopefully briefly mention is planning. Um, we have talked about that a little bit already. Um, Within distribution planning, which applies to all utilities, regardless of their regulatory context, we need to be shining a light into the black box and getting more complete information about the distribution system needs and the ways DERs can meet those needs. Um, There's some really key changes that can be made to distribution planning in order to move 
in that direction. And of course, Sarah, your work when you were at IREC and your colleagues at IREC um, do some of the best work on that. Um, and then finally, I want to mention procurement. Um, this is how utilities go out to the market and procure resources. So historically, DERs are not brought online through procurement. They're brought online through tariffs and programs. And I think as we see DER infrastructure maturing, it's going to be increasingly possible, as we've been talking about today, for DERs to be essential in providing grid services. And what we want to see is the, a movement toward all source procurements that allow the participation of aggregated DERs alongside supply-side resources uh, to compete in these procurements to um, really have the sort of best and most cost-effective resource win the day. And we're starting to see that as well. Um, some really sort of <laughs> ground-shaking uh, results from all-source procurements happening um, in various states that are sort of, I think, blazing a trail for the participation of demand-side resources and, um, and renewable resources as well. So again, some you know positive steps happening on all of these fronts. But I think as you've sort of hinted throughout today, Sarah, time is of the essence and we need to um, see these changes happen um, as quickly as possible. Great. What a great list. That's like a regulator's Christmas list. <laughs> or, maybe, or maybe that's the DER stakeholder Christmas list to the regulator. Yeah. I'm not sure which. Um, <laughs> Brian, what would you add to that? Uh, uh, well, Jessica was very eloquent in stating, you know, what my, I was going to state kind of just overall that PUCs as well as utilities and stakeholders really just need to recognize that DER are today underutilized and, and there are technical and financial hurdles that need to be addressed during planning. Um, and as well, uh, interconnection needs to be integrated with planning at more detailed levels. And I guess I'll just give one example of one of the challenges that I see um, from a very detailed technical perspective, but um, anti-islanding, you know, is required of all distributed generation so that when the, the bulk system uh, is, is disconnected from your circuit that you just shut off generation. But wouldn't it be great if you could actually maintain generation and create a microgrid? Um, that's not currently planned for at all. And additionally, if we wanted to, say, have a, a more effective anti-islanding regime, that might be something that's done on a distribution level, whereas today it's done, you know, an individual inverter on a PV system tries to detect whether it itself is disconnected from the bulk system rather than, you know, an entire circuit working together to determine uh, whether it's uh, work, whether it's disconnected from the rest of the system. And that could be done, um, you know, potentially through some distribution device and, you know, one possible solution. I'm not saying that this would be the one, but it, you could send a signal basically from the substation out to all the circuits uh, on the uh, electrical lines that the inverters would all detect. And if it's not there, they would know that they either shut down or they go into microgrid mode or something like that. Um, but that can't be done unless somebody pays for a device that's at the substation. And how do we do that under today's, you know, regulatory regime uh, and an interconnection regime where each individual distributed generator is paying for paying for its own anti-islanding needs? So that that really, I think, points to you know we need to look at distribution planning holistically, including DER and and all its um, 
detailed vagaries in terms of you know what uh, what needs to be purchased and put where, and how do we grow the the DER pie basically in order to go high, towards high penetration. Great, yeah, that's a really important issue, and I'm sure the folks out there who have distributed solar, distributed wind and or battery backup systems that they would love to be able to just, uh, if the grid does go down for whatever reason, just rely on their their own system to uh, to keep them running. Um, but as you say right now, if, if you don't have battery backup and you just have distributed generation, then you are unfortunately uh, out of luck. But maybe that will change going forward. Um, certainly we have a lot more pressure on the electricity grid to sustain a lot more functions. And we've certainly felt and seen that in the era of COVID as everyone is now online and relying on computers and phones to connect. So I think we can um, rest assured that all of us have our work cut out for us going forward. Um, and certainly the state regulators and policymakers do as well. Um, well, unfortunately, we are at time, and this has been such a great conversation. I really appreciate you both walking us through the nuances and the details of distributed energy resource policy making and regulatory structures. Um, really appreciate all the work you both do in this space, and uh, want to thank you for taking time to be with me today. Absolutely, thank, thank you, Sarah. You, Sarah. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And uh, for our listeners and subscribers, you can uh, find the links to the relevant articles and reports uh, as well as guest bios on the Grid Geeks website, www.goodgrid.net forward slash blog. And before I sign off today, I have an announcement to make. This is sadly my last episode of Grid Geeks as host. It has been a great run, uh, really an honor uh, to have taken the um, podcast baby that Al Allison Clements created uh, and taking it to through teenage years. Um, I've been doing this for two years now, which is, time has flown, um, but I've really enjoyed the show. It's been such a great way to connect with all these wonderful, smart people out there in the world. And um, it's now a, a fairly popular podcast with upwards of 7,000 subscribers and listeners. So it's been uh, been really cool. Um, so that's the sad news. The good news, and I and I hope it is good news for folks listening, that I am going to be launching a new podcast uh, on electrification policy, and we'll be exploring in a similar fashion the policy and regulatory issues underlying the shift to electrify our transportation sector, our buildings, and industry uh, as part of the broader decarbonization movement. And so I hope you will continue to listen and tune in. Um, with this announcement, I am also going to be launching a Twitter poll to get your feedback on a title. Haven't landed on one yet, so I want to get folks' feedback. I'm thinking maybe Electrify This or It's Electric. Maybe I can get the rights to the song. I'm not sure. But, uh, and you'll be able to find it where you can find podcasts, uh, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and so on. And then more details will be made available about this via my Twitter handle at Sarah underscore Baldwin2 or my LinkedIn profile and uh, also my new employer, Energy Innovation, uh, and their website, energyinnovation.org. So that's the news. Very exciting and bittersweet show, but I was super excited to have Brian and Jessica join me for, for my grand finale. Um, as far as Grid Geeks, the future of it, I am not sure. Allison Clements is going to uh, continue to hold on to it, and she may resurrect it here in the next little while, but um, I'm not sure, so you'll have to check in with her. Uh, also, want to just, uh, as always, give a huge thanks to 
my sound engineer, Rowan Stigner, with the Audio Inn in Salt Lake City. Uh, and again, thank you to the listeners, subscribers, and supporters. I really do hope you'll continue with me on my next podcast adventure. And signing off, I am your host, Sarah Baldwin. This is Great Geeks. Great Geeks.